Welcome to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We are an evangelical free church seeking to honor God by making disciples that learn about, love like, and live like Jesus. Good morning, Journey Church. Those of you who are with us in the house, those of you who are with us online, I want to begin this morning by just asking a question. Have you ever been faced with a challenge so enormous, so stubborn, so ongoing, so relentless, that it just wore you down and made you want to quit? You're chasing something worthy. It's so difficult. You just want to quit. I was nine years old. I was at my uncle's house when I saw a 29-inch rainbow trout in his freezer. My eyes bugged out of my head. I went nuts. I suddenly had a bucket list with one thing on it. My whole life's purpose was to fish at Lee's Ferry Crossing on the Colorado River. Only I was too small. If I fell in the river, my dad said I'd I'd drown because the cold would go right through me. But two years later, after two years of planning and preparation and, and, and dreaming, it was coming true. We were on our way to Lee's Ferry. We were halfway between Phoenix and Flagstaff when we hit a problem, a snag, a rare spring blizzard. And just like that, two years of planning and preparation and and dreaming was evaporating. Too dark, too far, too cold, too windy, too difficult, too dangerous to press on. And just like that, just like that, we were about to give up. We were about to quit trying. We're actually trying to ask the question, what is a healthy church? And, and not what I think it is for me and my preferences, my culturally uh, kind of curated ideas of, of what kind of church do I want to, f- to feed me and serve my preferences, but what does Jesus say? What, what's the biblical definition of a healthy church? What's my real job description, not the one that someone else might place on me? What's our job description? Not what other churches would, would make it look like, but what does Jesus say is our job description as Journey Church? And in order to answer that question, yes, we're going all the way through the scriptures back and forth, Old Testament, New Testament. Yes, we spent an entire year Uh, not a year, but 35 weeks of the year on the Sermon on the Mount. If you notice, we started this year on the Great Commission. Why? Because without understanding the New Testament through the lens of the Great Commission, you will not understand the New Testament. But on the other side of the New Testament, we have these seven letters to seven historical churches in Asia Minor. And again, we will not understand those letters unless we look at them through the lens of the mission. And lo and behold, as we study these letters, we see mission written all over them. We started several weeks ago, we saw Ephesus was the hardworking, discerning, sound teaching church, but they were not loving. Then we looked at Smyrna, they were beat down, persecuted, and impoverished, and yet they were a great witness, and Jesus called them rich. And we looked at Pergamum. They were tenacious, and they were a faithful witness in the face of full-blown, all-out persecution. But they were so focused on the frontal assault of the roaring lion called the devil, 
that he was actually slipping in through the back door through some false teachings. And then last week, week we looked at Thyatira, the hardworking and loving church, yet permissive and tolerant. And this morning, we look at Sardis, the church that gave up, the church that quit trying. If you have your Bibles open to Revelation chapter 3, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 6. If you don't have your Bibles, you can look on the bulletin or look up here on the screen, but I like the Bible. Here's what it says. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent if you will not wake up. I will come like a thief. You will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot out his name of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The first thing that I want you to just notice about this is not what Jesus says, but what he does not say. This church, there's no persecution. There's no social rejection or ostracization. There's no idolatry or immorality. There's no Nicolaitans. There's no Bel, uh, Balaam-like prophet or Jezebel-like prophetess that are deceiving and leading Christians in the church astray. And yet, and yet, they're circling the drain with one foot on a banana peel. They are almost dead. And this letter is a last-ditch effort to reawaken a church that is in a severe death spiral. So the question is, what's wrong with the church? And what must they do to survive? To be quickened, if you will, to be made alive. And the rest of our time together, we're going to look at the problem, the point, the path forward, and the promised. Because all those are contained and unfolds neatly in this text so here we go with the problem i'm going to tell you what it is and then i'm going to prove it to you okay so here's the problem they stopped trying so they stopped shining they stopped trying so they stopped shining i want to demonstrate this three different ways first the history of the city and you'll see this in every single one of the letters that jesus uses metaphors that are very unique to that very city he borrows heavily from the culture uh, and history of the city, not just the church. And we see that happening in Sardis. Secondly, the introduction, how Jesus introduces himself. But then also what his diagnosis is, and when we put those together, we get a real sharp focus. What's wrong here? They stopped trying, so they stopped shining. First off is the history of the city. Located 50 miles Northeast of Ephesus, Sardis was located at the crossroads of five major roads, high on a natural plateau. Listen to the words of Dennis Johnson. The fortress of Sardis was surrounded on three sides by sheer cliffs, so apparently 
impenetrable that to, quote, capture the Acropolis of Sardis, unquote, became a maxim for achieving an impossible feat. So to, to, to capture Sardis was like saying, yeah, when hell freezes over, it was unconquerable according to the way it was set up on the plateau. And they say that the Acropolis was 1,500 feet higher than the city. That's like Blackett's Ridge. It's like an enormous mountain, like impenetrable. So if, if they're under assault, everyone just go up to the Acropolis and we'll all just bunker up there. They can't get us here. But this idea of being impenetrable and unconquerable had led to an attitude. Second is that it was once a very, very wealthy city. It was still wealthy in the first century, but not as much as it once had been. In fact, the wealth of the city, um, it, it was once the territory of a King Croesus, who was compared to King Midas. The one with the golden touch. They say King Midas washed off his golden touch in the stream that flows near Sardis. Uh, and that there was gold dust in that stream. Like gold was just all around this, this city. So this unimaginable measures of wealth and military security led to an attitude. Where they had a false sense of security leading to slackness. At least two times in the history of Sardis, this attitude of we are untouchable led to the overthrow of the city. The first time was King Cyrus of Persia in 549 and then Antiochus Epiphanes IV in the year 2018. Both were able to overthrow the city because at nighttime they didn't set a guard. They said no one would be crazy enough to scale the impenetrable walls of the Acropolis. No one would be that crazy, and yet two times they were crazy enough to do it. And because of that, Sardis was overthrown. An attitude of laxity, of slackness. And as a city in the first century, it was still wealthy, and it still had that kind of impenetrable fortress and they should have learned from their past, but they hadn't. The whole town was known for its laxness, for its slackness. Overconfident Sardinians who never set a guard militarily for their city. And it was a city, both physically and metaphorically, a city on plateau. Their glory years were behind them. They were no longer growing and striving and working hard. And unfortunately, the church looked just like the city. A church that was sitting on its past. Sitting back and saying, we've been there, done that, got the t-shirt. It's someone else's turn. We've paid our dues. We're tired of working. It's time to take it easy. They stopped shining because they stopped trying that's the first thing is from their history secondly is from the introduction of jesus there's three things that i want to show you in verses one and two when jesus says uh, to the angel of the church in sardis write the words of him who has the seven spirits of god and the seven stars there's three things i want you to see here first off is that um similar to the to the introduction to the church in ephesus 
Jesus is introduced as one who has the seven stars. In Ephesus, he has the seven golden lampstands. But in this, he's got the seven spirits of God. Who or what is the seven spirits of God? And when we just do a shallow look at that, we realize it's the one who has the power of the Holy Spirit. He is the sevenfold spirit of God. In fact, in chapter 4, we're given this picture that the Holy Spirit is represented in the throne room of God as seven flames of God before his throne. And you could go back and research this Old Testament in Isaiah. It actually explains what the sevenfold spirit means. But Jesus says, I hold the authority of the Holy Spirit, the one who has the power to make alive. The one who animates churches and makes them fruitful. I have that power. Not just power of the golden candle stands, the churches, but Holy Spirit power. And then secondly is I hold the seven stars. We did uh, research on the first Sunday. Those are the seven bishops, the seven lead pastors of the city church. From chapter 1, they're explained. So he has the authority of the Holy Spirit and the authority of the pastors. The Holy Spirit is the one who is in the world to convict the world of sin, judgment, and righteousness. The Holy Spirit is the one who gives us courage, that gives us tenacity, that gives us a, a spirit of try. And, and despite all obstacles, that the Holy Spirit's the one that gives us the hope and the joy to keep after a worthy cause. The one that empowers our witness. What are the pastors? Pastors are those who train and equip and proclaim and model and, and exemplify the gospel to the church and help the church do that to the community. And Jesus says, I hold both. This is about shining. It's about shining the gospel into the community, into the city first, and then into the uttermost parts of the world. But how do we know they quit trying just because the city quit trying? Well, it's here in the words of Jesus in verse 1 and 2. I know your works, your reputation, this is the word uh, anoma, reputation, history, name, identity, uh, character. You have a character or a reputation or a history or a name of being alive. But you're dead. Wake up and strengthen. What's he talking about? What do you got to wake up and strengthen? What you used to do. The energy and effort with which you used to actually pursue the mission. The sacrifice that you used to be willing to pay. That you're no longer willing to pay that sacrifice. That discomfort, that feeling of awkwardness and meeting with your neighbor and interjecting the name Jesus. That now you're just cool. You're playing it cool. You used to do that. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. And now watch this. I've not found your works complete. So he's talking about works, energy, effort, and try. Ministry, volunteerism, witness, spiritual effort in the church and in the community. And again, they have this attitude. Been there, done that, got the t-shirt. We paid the price. Let someone else do it now. And they stopped trying. They gave up. And because they gave up and they quit trying, they quit shining. So here's the question. Why is there no persecution here? Why is there no social pressure 
to participate in idolatry? Why is there no all-out assault by the roaring lion called the devil persecuting the church? Because they're no longer a threat to him and his kingdom. They're a church that quit trying, a church that quit shining. Here's the point. If we were to say there's a bottom line to this message, this would be the bottom line. Because this transects in, in history and time and place and culture, but, but what is at the heart, if we were to sum up these six verses into one thing, I think we could say something like this. Jesus cares that we care. And that we care enough to keep trying. We're never responsible for, for when the fruit comes or how the fruit comes or how much the fruit comes. But he does say that there is some responsibility on our end of the bargain of being a church. And that he wants a people to actually care. To care about him and his name and his reputation and the gospel and the souls of people. In the world in which they live, he wants a church to care and to care enough to actually try. Not just to shout and blog and say it's bad and icky, but a church that is active and animated by love and compassion to go and actually do something that will actually move the needle and make a difference. So here's the question, why, why do churches, if we have the Holy Spirit and we have all this, this truth and this, this, these promises, why do churches and individual Christians quit trying? Why do they quit caring? I'm sure we could write a lot of things down to answer that, but can I, but can I just give you three that I think I see or have perhaps even experienced in my own heart? So this isn't even about you, this is about me. First reason why we quit, quit trying. Tired and discouraged. Constantly on, constantly giving, constantly serving, without a lot of success, positive feedback, um, or spiritual harvest. And after a while, you get pretty tired. When's the last time you led someone to faith in Christ? When's the last time you... You were used of God to save a marriage, to keep a household, a family off the streets, to see someone baptized. I mean, after a while, like, and I'm praying every day, and I'm making myself available, and how long can you do that? And you get tired and discouraged, right? Hey, good news, that's all over the history of the church for the last 2,000 years and all over the scriptures, and that's why the Apostle Paul needed to say this to the church in Galatia. Galatians 6, 9, let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So harvest is always just right around the corner. Keep going. Here's a second reason why we give up. Living in the past, living on past energy, past glory, past success, and or nostalgia. Nostalgia is an interesting word. It, it means Tyler Hurst taught me this today. Longing for a past that never happened. You think it did. It didn't. It was hard then, too. But you look back and go, yeah, but it was so big. We had so much money, and it seemed like we were filling out the baptistry every Sunday. No, we weren't. It was still hard. But even if it was, and if it was a little more than last time or this time, living in the past does not make up for what needs to be done today. In fact, 
Solomon said this in Ecclesiastes, in the New Living Translation, don't long for the good old days. This is not why wisdom. You ever wonder, like, when it was the good old days, did you know it? No, you were stressed out then too. It wasn't that good. We had problems. What if you're living the good old days right now? Can you just hug it? Thank you, Jesus, for the good, the good nowadays. <laughs> right here. Because we are experts at erasing bad things in the past. And then all you remember is the good and say, it used to be so good. And it's just not wise. It's just not true. Third reason, and this one's icky, but it has absolutely seeped into my heart at times. Entitled and lazy. I've earned the right. How dare you? Entitled and lazy. It's my turn to enjoy the good life. It's time for someone else to pay the price. This is why so many men die after they retire. They've got no purpose and drive and try. There's no grind left in them. They go, been there, done that. I don't want to grind it anymore. I, I'm, this is the good life. And then they die in six months from heart disease. I, it, it's ubiquitous. It happens all the time. Lose your purpose. Phone it in. Been there, done that. Entitlement. Someone else can work hard. In Malachi 1.13, again in the New Living Translation, I love how it words this. This is God talking to the people of Israel. You say, it's too hard to serve the Lord. It's too hard. We've tried it. It's too hard. And you turn up your noses at my commands. Go, yeah, that's Old Testament. God was kind of hard back then. Oh, let's go to, to, to loving Jesus in the parable of the talents. You remember the one servant that buried his one talent and has an interaction with the master? Uh, by the way, Jesus identifies with the master. I think we got this look, bunnies, flowers, and kittens version of Jesus. Well, yes, he is very loving. He's very kind, gentle and lowly. Come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden. But in this parable, the servant that is unwilling to invest his endowment buries it and sits on it. Jesus calls him, you wicked and slothful servant. Ow! So those are three, three quick reasons. And I'll say this, tired is one thing. Need for Sabbath is essential. We in our tradition are some of the greatest explainers away of Sabbath. And therefore, we're exhausted sometimes and dead on our feet because we don't realize. This is from the foundation of the universe. God Sabbathed. And no, there's not a, a legal requirement to earn your salvation by Sabbathing. However, it was created for man. And God himself, who needed no rest, took a Sabbath. There's a need for that. But I'll say this, living in the past, attitudes of, entirement, uh, of entitlement, sloth, and laziness is downright hazardous. So what are we to do about that as individuals and as a church? If we're worn down, tired, lazy, someone else needs to carry the pallet from now on. I've done my duty. What do we do? What is the path forward? Here it is. Wake up and get back to work no matter what your season. 
We're not there yet unless we're there yet. No, the only person who tells us that we're there yet is Jesus. So when that attitude of entitlement, I'm too tired, I can't do it, creeps in, you say, Lord. I mean, look at the, look at the example of Jesus. He said to his disciples, come away for a little while and rest with me. But then the crowds of people who had, had people who had sicknesses and spiritual issues like demon possession pressed in on him and so they continued to labor. When they were supposed to go on vacation, compassion drove Jesus to finish the job and we follow him. Yes, get that rest in that Sabbath, but there's sometimes when we are called to extra innings in some seasons what it's like it's going to be two more years it's going to be three more years i thought it was one more month nope it's one more decade so how how do we do that um let me say this getting to work no matter what the season takes different form for each one of us it looks different from a vocational pastor at 53 than a, a mother of three toddlers. It looks different. And what I don't want to happen in this church is judging each other. She could do more. He could do more. No, that's icky. This is between you and Jesus, and it's about a conglomerate of all of us put together. Are we a church that is energized by love and mission and actually kicks butt and makes stuff happen for Jesus? Because we're not done yet. Jesus says to this church, and I think he would say to us, we're not done yet. We're still here. Let's get after it, even in the midst of different kinds of lives. You might be in your second half of your career trying to figure out what does this look like. Maybe you're semi-retired or fully retired. You go, I still have a contribution to make. There's three guys that I just, heroes in my life. Bud Brown, because he doesn't need a dime to keep going, but he keeps going keeps blogging, keeps writing, turnaround pastors is a, something that I, I belong to and I'm a part of. Um, he was a member at this church. They, they live back in Arizona again. But Bud Brown, a hero, he doesn't do it for money. He does it because he's still stretching and reaching and trying to strengthen pastors around the nation. Another one is Rick Simpson. He's in here today. Sorry, Rick. Dude, you know, we pay him some years. We pay him in a, like a $200 gift card to Amazon. Serious. That guy does so much ministry, and he doesn't take a dime. Only if we slip him that card. And I go, I want to be like Bud. I want to be like Rick. Uh, there's another guy named Michael. He's in the back row back there that I've been getting to know. And I won't tell you his whole story. He, he'd have to give me permission someday. But he's looking like, I don't need to work, but I need to work. And so a member of a couple different boards, how can I get involved here when I'm, I'm uh, two weeks as a snowbird? What can I do to help you, Jim? What can I do to help the kingdom of God? He's looking, and he doesn't need to. And I want to be that guy. How can I make a contribution when I don't need a paycheck? Can I keep maximizing my time, effort, energy, and learning? To wake up, Jim Roden, get back to work, no matter what the season of life. It looks different in the seasons of life, but we keep after it. Jesus goes on to say, Wake up, strengthen what remains. Remember what you received and heard. That's the gospel. And it's not just the free grace, which I believe in. But a gospel that inspires me to give my life for the mission for others. 
Keep that gospel and repent. We're in the midst, we, uh, day seven of a church-wide church survey that took 14 months to design. And in the final iteration, we decided that we would put a space in there for unfiltered, anonymous feedback. Why? Because I love that. Let people hide and give them a keyboard? Really? I'm not sure it's good for you. But why would I do that? Because I'm a glutton for punishment? To survey the whole church and, and say, you don't have to sign your name, just tell us what you think. Tell me if I'm an idiot. Why would I do that? You want to know why? It's because the church of Sardis terrifies me. And I would rather, I would rather get kicked in the teeth than to have this letter read to me on that day. It's like smelling salts. It's like being hit in the head with a frying pan. Bar, wake up! My goodness, is there something I'm missing? Lord Jesus, is there something I'm missing? Is there something that we're missing? Because I don't want to be that guy. And Jesus says, if you won't, if you won't wake up, if you won't stay after it, I will come like a thief and you will not know what hour I come against you. Verse 3. Do you remember he said something very similar? And this letter is very similar to uh, the church at Ephesus. And in Ephesus, he said it like this in, in Revelation 2.5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. I mean, that's, that's like man talk, right? This is not like bunnies, kittens, and flowers, Jesus. This is man talk, Jesus. I'll come against you. I swear to you I'll come against you. He doesn't have to swear. I do. He always tells the truth. I will come against you. You won't even know what hits you. Wow. It's powerful, powerful wake-up call. And why is he so, so clear and forceful? Let me ask you this. Why do you think so many churches are closing their doors in North America? 4,000 per year? 4,500 per year on average? Maybe... Jesus is cleaning his household. Maybe he's purifying his bride for the coming wedding day. This is what the Apostle P Peter said, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God, and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? That's stiff medicine for real men and women. So we are called to wake up, strengthen, remember, keep, repent. Wake up, strengthen, remember, keep, repent. Wake up, strengthen, remember, keep, repent. Wash, rinse, repeat for the rest of our lives until he comes for us. Amen? Now, what happens? What happens with despite all of your energies and efforts, you can't find a church that wants to work as hard as you want to work? What if the church that you're committed to, you're going, man, let's do this. And no one seems like they want to move. They're all just kind of phoning it in and just kind of, hey, let's just chill out, man. What happens if I'm a pastor and I'm dancing with all my might? Come on, church. Come on, church. Come on, church. And the church doesn't want to do it. Can I give you the promise? Because I just love this about the scriptures that it's corporate and collective. 
but it's also highly individualistic at the same time. And here's, here's the idea, and then let me like, prove, this, prove this to you. The promise is I can still walk in white even if my church quits trying. You hear that? You can't claim victimization, but I was, I was a part of a sleepy church. Jesus? He goes, no, you don't have that excuse. You can still walk in white even if your church quits trying. There's a couple things I wanted to show you here in verse 4, 5, and 6. First off, there are some, now they're in, very much in the minority in Sardis, some. The majority is asleep. But there are some here who have not soiled their garments. You say, what's that? And then we read on and we discover more. They will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Now, worthy, what does this mean? Uh, the word worthy in the Greek is axios, where we get the word axle. And so when we think about this, I don't want you to think, oh, is, I'm getting a mixed message. Do we have to earn forgiveness in heaven by faithfulness? Or is that a gift and this is something different? Or is, are these contradicting each other's? Are there some people that are worthy of grace? And the answer is flat out, no, we're all unworthy of grace. What's this mean? There are faithful believers that are saved by grace through faith whose lifestyle actually matches their profession of faith. It's equal weighting, but what they claim to believe is axios with the way they live and give and serve and love. They are axios. And Jesus goes, that's a good thing. Are you saved by grace? Then act like it. Not to prove it, not to earn it, not to keep it, but to just act like it. Axios. What does it mean to be walking with him in white? What is that picture? I, I kind of thought that, that this would be the righteousness of God and this would be like justification by faith. Jesus' righteousness put on me. No, I don't think so. Nope. In fact, we go forward to Revelation chapter 19 and we see what these white garments are. Listen to what it says. It was granted to her, which is the church, the bride of Christ, to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. You know, one of the tragedies of our time is constantly quoting Isaiah 64, 6. All our righteous deeds are as filthy garments. But guess what? If you are in Christ and you are under the lordship of Jesus, your righteous deeds are no longer filthy garments. Righteous deeds, Ephesians 2, 10, deeds. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that he has prepared beforehand that we might walk in them are not filthy garments. They are considered white clothing of purity and holiness and goodness. So my righteous deeds that come from my new life in Christ are holy, not filthy. In the axios believers that live what they say they believe will walk in white. There's one more thing I want to point out that's really interesting here. What does it mean that Jesus says to the ones who conquers, I will never blot out his name of the book of life. 
but I'll confess his name before the Father and his, his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear. It sounds like, uh-oh, I could have my name enrolled in the Lamb's Book of Life as a forgiven, signed, sealed, delivered child of God. And then if I get it wrong, and I'm not Axios, he would take out his big eraser and erase it. Doesn't it sound like that? So we got to tap to that because that's not the, the, the full weight and balance of the scripture. Full weight of the balance of scripture is no one can snatch them out of my hand. My father who, who's greater than me, who gave them to me, no one can snatch them out of his hand. Including the, the one himself can't squiggle and worm out because they are a man too. So we have this, this very clear teaching on eternal security. And then you go, uh-oh, this seems like that's going in the other direction. So can we take a moment and explain this? Best research is this, and it's, it's recorded, that in the first century, the synagogues of Asia Minor came up with a curse to pray against Christians. And we actually have it, uh, Hemmer is being cited by, by uh, a commentator named Beale, but it was called the Jewish curse of Minim. And this is what the curse of Minim was that was prayed in the synagogues, likely the synagogues in Sardis and the seven churches. May the Nazarenes and the Minim suddenly perish. Nazarene's a name for Christians, first century. May the Christians and the Minim suddenly perish and may they be blotted out of the book and not enrolled with the righteous. And Jesus says to the faithful in Sardis, that ain't happening. Good? Here's one more thing to say about that. Yes, we have good works. Individually, corporately. I don't know what they all are. We got to wake up tomorrow and keep trying, right? See what they are. The church of Sardis had good works and they put them on pause. And Jesus said, you better get back to those. Right? But guess what? Jesus also had a good work. A finished work. A solid work. A work that he performed on the cross called the atonement. Where Jesus' work brings the forgiveness of sins. And when he said it is finished, it is finished. And for everyone who would place their faith in Jesus, it is finished. Your names will never be blotted out of the Lamb's book of life. Now, like, let's live as if it is true. I can still walk in white even if my church quits trying. Well, I'm 11 years old. We're on our way to Flagstaff when we ran into that blizzard. Too cold, too dark, too windy, too dangerous. And that's when I started bawling. And my tears moved my father to action. And we kept going. And because of that, it was the greatest, number one, best fishing trip of my life. No, it wasn't 29 inches. It was only 20 inches. But it was huge for an 11-year-old. Journey Church, we're not fishing for trophy rainbow trout at least very, we are fishers of men. 
and women, something far more valuable. And no matter what we've gone through, no matter what we've accomplished, good or bad, no matter what price that we've already paid, guess what? We're not there yet. Like the Church of Sardis, we got to keep trying and we got to keep shining. To those of you who carry two and three jobs in this church and in this community and ministry, thank you. Thank you. We would like to say nobody gets two jobs until everyone has one. But because everyone doesn't have one, you have two and three. And you go extra innings all the time. You represent us in the church and in the community. Thank you. But are there others? And this is between you and Jesus. Hey, I'm a consumer. I come here. I like what you do and what you offer. This fits me nice. But no, I have not taken another step and made a contribution. What might that contribution be? Uh, Again, it's time sensitive, a season of life. I get it. Sabbath is important, but what might it be that Jesus is calling you to today? In Journey Church Together, you know that the scripture says that the pastors and teachers, apostles, prophets, evangelists, are supposed to do all the ministry, right? And that's what you pay them for? It's actually not what the New Testament says. The New Testament says that the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers are there to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. And so that as we do our very best and offer classes in small groups and things that are designed to shape and help and support you, say yes. I'll name a couple of things real quickly. Tyler's discipleship class is It's a theology class, but right now it's a theology of discipleship. How to go about discipling someone else. But that's to equip the saints to go do the work of the ministry so that we're not falling asleep at the wheel. And we're all equipped and we're all moving forward. So there's one, two. Men's cohorts coming up. And you go, what does that mean? I don't know. I'll be in one. I don't want to lead one. Why not? I've I've watched it in the church. We organize it and it's just a sign up. You'll do it. But when it says, but we need someone to lead it, oh, oh, it gets quiet real quick. Someone to carry the pallet, someone to carry the burden. And instead say, yes, I'll give it a shot. My wife and I, in the next three months, we're going to do three meetings for small group leaders. First one for existing small group leaders. We want to refresh you on the mission. The second one is April. In April, for those that can imagine, I might be interested, but I don't know what that looks like. We're going to host that on a Sunday afternoon at our house. And then the third one is for all small group leaders, old and new alike. We need more small group leaders. This is just three examples of things that we could do together as a church. And why this talk, why this message, why this letter? Here it is, one more time. Jesus cares that we care and that we care enough to actually keep trying. Let me give you one final verse of encouragement. 1 Corinthians 15, 58, right at the end of a very messy letter to that New Testament church at Corinth. Paul says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Amen. Father, sometimes we get tired, sometimes we get tricked and deceived, sometimes we just don't feel like paying the price again, 
Sometimes taking a risk seems too risky. We want to bury our talent. We want someone else to run with the ball. But Lord, we're asking you individually and collectively, what's the next thing? Does it start this afternoon? Does it start tomorrow? Does it start in six months? Lord, we want to be on task and on point. We want to wake up. We want to remember. We want to keep it. We want to be in repentance. Help us to care, Lord, and care to the degree that we keep after it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And if you agree with that, say amen. Thank you for listening to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We'd love to have you join us in person on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. You can find out more about us at journeyefc.org.